Hi, welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, we're joined by a very esteemed newspaper man and author, Tim Weiner. He is the best-selling author of Legacy of Ashes, which is probably the definitive history of the CIA from its inception until, I guess, when the book was published in the mid-2000s, am I correct in saying that? Yeah. And also the uh, author of a new book, and a very timely one at that, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare, 1945 to 20. And it's because of that book that we've invited Tim on the program, because obviously this is a especially urgent subject matter. And before we started recording, I, I invited Tim to offer what he thought, since it's his text, uh, would be sort of the two seminal chapters or case studies from his book. And we're going to work it the following way. First, we're going to give an example of a KGB active measure or Russian disinformation efforts, which have in effect changed history, or at least the perception of history. Uh, and then part two, we'll kind of flip the script and talk about American intelligence efforts or interference campaigns, particularly in Eastern Europe at the end of the Cold War. So, you know, in other words, America giving as good as it got using some of the same methodology and tradecraft. So Tim, uh, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I'm a big fan of especially your first book, which I'm reading as background and, and sort of the American context for uh, doing my own research into the GRU, Russian military intelligence. I mean, I really do think it's a fabulous, breezy and readable history, a very complicated subject matter. So congratulations on that and congrats on the second book. I would love to hear your thoughts, particularly in light of kind of the mood music or background music that we're all experiencing now with less than a month to go before another presidential election. And you've got America's intelligence community on record saying the Russians, not just the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, pretty much everybody is actively interfering and trying to kind of recraft an electoral narrative, whether to benefit Donald Trump or to hurt Donald Trump and benefit Biden, it doesn't matter anymore. It's kind of become yeah, a free for all. But the difference that the Russians are and have been for five years trying to monkey wrench the election. The right. Chinese are doing what they do because their intelligence operations aimed at the United States uh, are more economic espionage and technology espionage. And the Iranians, they're just really background noise at this point. Right. So walk us through, I mean, you know, some of this stuff has become, shall we say, uh, you know, intelligence lore or disinformation studies lore. Give us, to your mind, the most successful KGB or Soviet stroke Russian interference campaign from the beginning of the Cold War. Because, you know, one of the debates we're having now is, is this stuff really successful? Well, background. In 1957, the KGB created the new department, Department D as in disinformation. And they were very good at it. I mean, the Russians have been at this for a long time. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion being one sure. example from the beginning of the 20th century. For example, the disinformation department created the idea that the CIA had killed President Kennedy, conspired to assassinate JFK. They planted an article in a left-wing Italian newspaper linking some schmo named Clay Shaw, a New Orleans businessman, to the CIA conspiracy. The New Orleans DA bought it. And now we've all seen Oliver Stone's movie JFK, which is based on this. Russian disinformation concept that the CIA killed Kennedy. And millions of Americans still believe that. Awareness of this in the United States was virtually non-existent until September 1980, when Jimmy Carter's press secretary held a press conference and said, the Russians have forged an NSC document showing that Jimmy Carter is a vicious racist and is trying to divide Black Americans from Black Africans. 
Republicans. They forged this document. They planted it in a left-wing newspaper in San Francisco, and it went around the world. Well, the White House press corps had never seen anything like this, but it was a one-day story. The 1980 election was coming up. Once Reagan was inaugurated, a very small but very effective team of people from CIA, FBI, state, uh, the U.S. Information Agency got together and they formed something called the Active Measures Working Group. Active Measures, of course, is Russian, the Russian version of political warfare. Doesn't quite match our concept, but they overlap. And their first report detailed a particularly deadly example of disinformation. The KGB planted the idea that Americans were behind a takeover by Saudi terrorists of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. And this went around the Islamic world. And a mob formed in Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, and they burned and sacked the American embassy and the CIA station. In Islamabad, four people died, Americans to Pakistani contract uh, employees. So disinformation can be deadly. The group not only published reports, but it went truth squatting around the world, going to uh, American embassies and talking to foreign diplomats, foreign reporters. But then it fell on hard times. It was hijacked by a cell at the White House, including Oliver North, uh, who formed their own rogue group and started producing disinformation aimed at American audiences. For example, that the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, Nicaragua had acquired uh, Soviet MiG fighters. You know, the television networks broke into their election coverage in October 1984 with this bullet, and people in Congress were calling for, you know, bombing Managua. Well, it was a lie. It, it was Soviet-style disinformation aimed at swaying American public opinion coming out of a, a cell that included Ollie North. Well, we know what became of Ollie North, uh, not much good. So in 85, uh, the Active Measures Working Group revived, and one of the first things they confronted was what we all know now as the AIDS hoax, that AIDS had been invented at the Army's Germ Warfare Laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Well, you know, as Mark Twain is alleged to have said, a lie can go around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. Millions of Americans, particularly African-Americans, still believe that, that the Army engineered AIDS as a bioweapon. So this group recognized and called out disinformation coming from KGB in the 80s, and they were quite good at it. They are defunct, and, you know, we could use something like that now. Unfortunately, it's up to the press and internet sleuths to play whack-a-mole with Russian disinformation schemes. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's one thing to get to the root or the provenance of a disinformation scheme and to say, this is how we know this came from the Russian side. But as you point out, once these lies or conspiracy theories go viral, you cannot contain them. Even if you expose the source code or the origin of it, people still refuse to believe the truth because the nature of active measures is to get you to become skeptical and dubious of all lines and narratives. It's not necessarily for you to believe one. It's for you not to be able to discern fact from fiction or to, to put any faith and fidelity into uh, one source of information. Yeah, I mean, I decided to write this book uh, July 2018. Uh, I was working on another book at the time, which will probably never get done. And uh, my wife and I were up in Vermont. We were trying to work, write, stay off uh, the internet. And I went to pick up the New York Times at, at the uh, general store uh, up the road. And there was Trump and Putin in Helsinki. Question to both of them from a reporter, didn't the Russians hack our election? And Trump says, well, you know, Dan Coates and the American intelligence community say so, but I have Vladimir Putin here. He tells me he didn't do it. I don't see any reason why the Russians would have done it. I believe him. Right. That was like a five alarm fire for the American intelligence community. Sure. But no one remembers what Putin said after that. Putin said, well, as to who can be believed and who cannot be believed, no one can be believed. 
This is the pointy end of the spear of Russian disinformation. Nothing is true. All governments are corrupt. Give up, go home, tune out, watch video games, everything's screwed. And yet, you know, it doesn't even require Russian interference to kind of sell that kind of epistemological chaos, right? I mean, so many of the things that we are now experiencing, much to our regret, this QAnon conspiracy, right-wing militias, the recrudescence of them in Michigan with an attempt to kidnap the governor. I mean, these seem like homegrown phenomena. So if I'm sitting in Moscow or in St. Petersburg, I guess is more likely the case if it's an information campaign, all I want to do is look at what's kind of bombinating around on the internet or in the American zeitgeist and just sort of take things. As you point out, the origins or the history of active measures, they have actually created things whole cloth, which have then become either assimilated into the American right. consciousness or determine the course of, if not history, then historiography, right? It helps immeasurably their cause when presidents and senators are amplifying and parroting their disinformation. That's a force multiplier. So let's talk a bit about what America has done, either in retaliation to this stuff or just as a way of you know, standing up its own argument during the Cold War. You have a chapter about Polish solidarity in the 80s in your book. Explain a little bit about what that was for people who might be too young to remember um, and also, or too old to remember <laughs> as the case may be, and also what the CIA and, and the American sure. intelligence community did with that movement. Well, for those of you youngins under the age of 40, in the Cold War, there were the so-called satellite states or captive nations like Poland, which were being controlled through military force and through repression by the Soviet Union, by puppet governments. In Poland's case, led by a general. You know, the Poles are like the Irish of Eastern Europe. They're hopeless romantics. And as Stalin said, communism doesn't fit the Poles. They, they're too individualistic. Communism fits them like a saddle fits a cow. And Stalin was right about that. They never fully succumbed to Soviet control. In 1980, there rose up in the shipyards of Gdansk a trade union movement that called not just for, you know, fair wages and fair representation, but for democracy in Poland. Uh, and it was called Solidarity. In response, the Polish uh, government, in part to ward off all full-scale Soviet invasion of Poland, imposed martial law, banned Solidarity, jailed its leaders, drove it underground in 1981. In 1982, fully a year later, there was a meeting in November uh, in the Situation Room of President Reagan, Bill Casey, the CIA Director, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, and the CIA put forward a proposal, a modest proposal, to help keep solidarity alive. And it was slugged QR for Poland, helpful, Operation Helpful, uh, not a randomly chosen name. And so what the CIA did was to smuggle, not guns, not gold, but the tools of a free press into Poland, paper, printing presses, ink secreted in Hershey's chocolate syrup bottles, fax machines, and then radios, clandestine radio broadcasting. And then in 1985, a really neat uh, piece of technology, which fit in a suitcase and enabled Solidarity to break into the television broadcasts of the state news. Now imagine this, you're in Warsaw, it's fall of 1985, you're watching the, the seven o'clock news and some gray man in a gray suit, you know, talking about tractor production and coal uh, quotas being met. And suddenly on the screen, Solidarity Lives, emblazoned on the screen, it says, tune into Solidar Solidarity Radio at this frequency in half an hour. 
Well, the Poles were mobilized to resist. And of course, this operation uh, had support from the Catholic Church and from the Pope, who was Polish. The Pope had an agent in every church in Poland, really, to spread the, the news of uh, liberation, solidarity. Mm. And they won. Solidarity became the government of Poland. And that was before the Berlin Wall came down. That was the domino. I mean, there's a whole kind of monograph to be written. In fact, I think there have been on the CIA's role in the cultural aspects of the Cold War. Smuggling Dr. Zhivago out of the Soviet Union and getting sure. it published. And Jackson right. Pollock's paintings. What's interesting about, in Legacy of Ashes, I should say, you know, you, it's very difficult to find a chapter or section of that book where the CIA doesn't come across looking either malevolent or incompetent or even in their in their quote-unquote successes, such as the overthrow of Mossadegh. I mean, the germs or the, the seabed of catastrophe is already built in. Great you know. successes like the overthrow of Mossadegh in uh, Iran and the installation of the Shah, they knew months after that they had cre created the police state. Right. It's in declassified documents that came out after Legacy of Ashes. But that was okay. I mean, it was a black and white world, right? Either you're first or you're against. You know, the idea of uh, Stalin and, and later Khrushchev barging into Iran, stealing their oil, as in fairness, the British had done at the beginning of the 20th century, was unbearable. The great success of the 1980s was arming the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. I traveled with the Mujahideen in 1987 and returned to Afghanistan many times thereafter. I saw Stinger anti-aircraft missiles being fired uh, against uh, Soviet MiGs in 1987. And we poured uh, $3 billion worth of weaponry into Afghanistan, the CIA did in the 1980s, and drove the Soviets out. It was their Vietnam. That was an amazing victory, but then, you know, the Secretary of State, Jim Baker, said, we don't have a dog in this fight anymore, and we left. We didn't do anything to rebuild the country. We didn't do anything to project, you know, the image of American democracy into Afghanistan, which would have been a tall order, I grant. And what did we get? The seeds of future struggle were being planted right. in Afghanistan. Put it euphemistically. Let me ask you this. It was a big expose. I think it came out of Ramparts, which is a, an old left-wing magazine run out of San Francisco that Encounter magazine was being subsidized by the CIA. Now Encounter was was created by sort of free-thinking anti-Stalinist dissidents or intellectuals, including many socialists or Trotskyists or recovering Trotskyists. I mean, Orwell had written for them. It was kind of the brainchild of Irving sure. Kristol before his complete neoconservative transformation and Stephen Spender, the English poet. And when this story broke, you talk about a taint, right? All of the people who wrote for Encounter were immediately implicated in being part of an American active measure aimed at the Soviet Union. And yet, I struggle to find a Soviet or even contemporary Russian operation, let us say, that was as, frankly, elegant or powerful, because Encounter was a great journal. Right. The thoughts and the essays and the opinions and the arguments yeah. that it brought to bear, that those weren't manufactured or stage managed by mustache twirling guys from Langley. And, I, you know, Sir Roy Jenkin, the, the British historian, when he was told or found out about it, his line was good for the CIA. Can you the, think of a, of, a, of a Russian equivalent of that? Meaning that doesn't force people's hands, doesn't supply the, the ether with bullshit or disinformation, but is just an encouragement for cultural freedom. Yeah, well, of course, the CIA executive who oversaw much of this in the 1950s was a guy named Tom Braden, and he called it the battle for Picasso's mind. In other words, we wanted to, the CIA and the United States more broadly, was perfectly happy to try and split the non-communist left away from the communists as a way to weaken the communists. 
Well, gosh, I mean, the Soviet Union sponsored the equivalent of all this, you know, uh, arts councils, more famously in the 1980s, uh, the World Peace Council, the uh, nuclear freeze groups, uh, anti-war, anti-World War III groups all over Europe, because they were scared out of their minds, and not without reason, that Ronald Reagan was ginning up for World War III. Star Wars, which was in itself, I would argue, a massive strategic deception initiative, scared the living daylights out of the Soviets. And there was a great nuclear war scare, which we're still learning about in 1983. This was no joke. So the Soviets, partly, you know, as part of their huge disinformation operation, I'll tell you how huge it was in a moment, were perfectly willing to sponsor socialist or even centrist nuclear freeze groups, peace groups, if it looked like, you know, it could score them some points in the contest, the battle for the minds of lesser figures than Picasso. And to paint the United States as a warmongering, 300-pound, seven-foot-tall teenager rattling the nuclear saber. The Department of Disinformation that I talked about earlier had grown by, in 1980 to 15,000 people with a budget of roughly $4 billion a year, making it bigger than the entire clandestine service of the CIA in the 1980s. They weren't screwing around here. They had, and they have today, the world's biggest factory of fake news. And they're tremendously skilled at it. We don't know how to do this very well because we're Americans. You know, secrecy and deception are not our strong suits. And that's the way it was through much of the Cold War. Well, I was going to say, you know, Department K doesn't have its own Oliver North, who was, you know, interrogated before, you know, the, the State Duma and asked, why are you perpetrating these gross deceptions on the, the Russian people, right? There was no illustration after the collapse of the Soviet Union or even the archives that were released. It was just a, a fraction of the documents that they still keep secret. I mean, yeah. the GRU archives have never been released, for instance. People who were plying their trade back then, regardless of any kind of um, moral, ethical compromises or frankly, you know, flagrant attacks on human rights and civil liberties are arguably still at least, you know, in the background of creating this sort of system of deception and disinformation today. Whereas I don't think that's true in the American case, particularly with the retirement <laughs> age that's sort of strictly enforced now at Langley and, and elsewhere. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I, I want to know, because it's, it's easy to kind of give, you know, here's the one side and then here's the other. Here's yeah. where they kind of overlap or compare, but where do they contrast in your view? Yeah, well, I was able to write <clears throat> Legacy of Ashes, which is a history of the CIA from its founding in 47 up through 2007, 60-year history. Because Bob Gates, God bless Bob Gates, uh, decided when he was CIA director at the end of the Cold War, he said, we're going to declassify our Cold War history, warts and all. Well, the clandestine service was not terribly happy about this, and it took 15 years for at least part of the pig to go through the python of declassification. But by circa 2005, you had, I had a critical mass of declassified documents about the history of the CIA. So I could write the book on the record with, you know, a couple hundred interviews as well. Let me give you an example of the kind of secret that spilled out during the brief period in the 1990s when the KGB archives were accessible. A guy named Alexander Vasilyev, who was a KGB officer and then became a journalist in the 1990s, got a contract from an American publisher to go into the KGB archives and see what he could find. And he's rooting around and he finds the case of a United States congressman named Samuel Dickstein. Ever heard of, heard of this case? Yeah. Okay. So Samuel Dickstein from the Lower East Side here in New York served 23 years 
22, was the chairman of the House Immigration and Naturalization Committee in the 30s. And he also had a side hustle uh, selling passports. So one great day in the morning, he walks into the Soviet embassy in Washington, newly opened, sits down with the ambassador and says, I would like to do you a favor. You want passports for Soviet spies? And the ambassador said, da, okay. He said, fine, 25 grand a year, which is three times his congressional salary, plus, you know, 3,000 a pop for special cases. His code name in the KGB archives was Crook for a very good reason, because he was a greedy so-and-so. Samuel Dickstein got away with it. He was an agent of influence in the United States Congress. He died in 1954, buried with pomp and honor. And if you go down the Lower East Side to the corner of Pitt and Grand in Manhattan, you're standing in Samuel Dickstein Plaza. So in 1999, Vasilyev comes across this file. Nobody knew this story, that the KGB's predecessor had a paid agent of influence in the Congress of the United States selling passports to Soviet spies, who then proceeded to thoroughly penetrate the government of the United States with agents of influence in the State Department, in the FBI, the Justice Department, in the Treasury Department, in the OSS, our wartime intelligence service. And, you know, that penetration continued in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s with Robert Hansen at the FBI, with Alder James of the CIAs, who sold out the names of every Soviet and Russian working for the CIA and the FBI in the 1980s. Their penetration of the American government in the 20th century was deep and effective. Okay, really fascinating and uh, detailed stuff. And I encourage everyone to go out and buy both your books, Legacy of Ashes, History of the CIA and the Folly and the Glory, which encompasses the history of Russian US political warfare since the Cold War until this very year. So Tim Weiner, again, it was a, a real privilege and pleasure and I hope you come back. You bet. Thank you. Sure.